welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. Sermon by Chris Wiley on June 19th, Lord's Day Service. I'll uh, read the seventh chapter, but I'll also be addressing matters found in chapters eight and nine, but I won't read all of chapter eight and the first portion of chapter nine, but just be aware that you may want to keep your finger in your Bible and uh, be ready to turn to those chapters. Chapter 7 begins, a good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter. For by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful, and in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say. 
lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you have your, yourself have cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been far off and very and deep, very deep, who can find it out? I turn my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom in the scheme of things and to know the, uh, the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher. While adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found, one man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I found, that God has made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart will be acceptable to you, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, we live in a world where many people say they're looking for answers, and we see here in Ecclesiastes, Solomon uh, reflecting upon his own search for wisdom and, his, and a quest to know. See there in verse 27, Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things. He's trying to find why things work the way they do. Now, one of the things I think it's important to keep in mind whenever we uh, wonder about uh, this quest for knowledge is that often it's the nature of the questions that are really the most important things to get right. You can't expect to get good answers if you don't ask good questions. You know, sometimes teachers in, an, in, you know, in a quest to, to encourage students to speak up in class will say something really stupid like, there is no such thing as a dumb question, when that is actually the case. There really are dumb questions. And uh, if you ask dumb questions, you tend to get uh, dumb, you know, answers. So you have to think through this whole matter, first of all, of what sorts of things ought we to want to know? What kinds of things are worth knowing and what should we pursue? This brings to my mind something that uh, I engaged in as a kid and probably, uh, you know, experienced as a parent. Well, I do know that I experienced it as a parent. And this is, and this is probably true for you, too. And it's, uh, it's the why game. You've played the why game, or maybe it's been played with you. You know, the way the why game works is you say something innocuous like, the sun's up, it's daytime, and then the kid says, why? And then you, you know, endeavor to answer the question with some explanation concerning the nature of, uh, you know, gravity and orbits and suns rising and setting and so forth. And then the next question is, what? Why? And this just kind of goes on because really what the kid really is looking for is not answers but amusement. The child is seeking to annoy <laughs> the authority in his or her life. And so the questions just kind of go on forever until what happens? Until mom or dad says, because I said so, shut up. <laughs> and that's the end of it. Now, uh, grown-ups play the, you know, the why game too. And for some of the same reasons, there really are people out there who, 
who seem to be on a quest to know but really aren't all that interested in knowing. If you spend any time in higher education as a professor or even a student, you know this to be true. People are uh, in you know, you know, institutions of uh, higher learning not because they want to know, but because this is how you get a good job or because their employer said they had to do it or they need a credential in order to kind of get to the next phase of life. And these are people that can be tremendously frustrating to work with because actually they just don't want to know. Why don't they want to know? Well, because with knowledge comes responsibility. I remember when I worked for State Street Bank of Boston, which is a big corporate bank, I was in college, and I really didn't want any more responsibility in my life. I just didn't. I had mastered the job. I knew how to do it really fast, get in, get out, get paid. I didn't want to know anything more. And so every once in a while, you know, someone would say, do you want to learn this? And I'd say, you know, what was yeah, the polite thing to say, sure. But I didn't really mean it. Inside I was thinking, no. <laughs> I really don't want any noise. I, you know, I, I don't like banking. I don't, I don't intend to be a corporate banker. And I just want to go home. That was really what was going on in my mind. And a lot of folks kind of go through life that way. They really just don't want to know. They just want to get out of life what they want to get out of life. Now, some of the things that people want uh, to get out of life are, are just fine. They're praiseworthy. They're worthwhile. But we uh, shouldn't expect too much when it comes to people who say or, or assume too much when people say they want to know. Now, sometimes, though, people are in a you know, genuine quest for wisdom, and here we see that it's a worthwhile endeavor. We see here in verse 12, chapter 7, uh, Solomon say that, that there are some benefits to wisdom that accrue to the person who is wise. There in, in verse 12 he says, for the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. So wisdom is not only intrinsically valuable, worth possessing for its own sake, but it has extrinsic benefits, things that come to you because you possess it. Now some people are more focused on that, and that's fine, and we can note here that it's one of the things that Solomon notes. He says, though, in verse 19, something else. Wisdom gives strength to the man more than ten rulers who were in a city. Knowledge often is not just simply a sort of abstract kind of state that we can kind of enter into because we know things. When we genuinely know things, we can know what to do and when to do them. And that's remarkably valuable. I remember a story that uh, kind of illustrates this. Back when Henry Ford was just getting off the ground and had gotten his you know, assembly line functioning, there was a lot of uh, machinery that had been crafted with the specific purpose of making that assembly line work. In other words, we're talking about one-off machines. They're not like things you get off the shelf at some you know, assembly line setup uh, business. <laughs> These things were made for that assembly line. And one day there was a, uh, a breakdown and the entire assembly uh, line came to a, a stop because one of the machines wasn't working. So the guy who had built the machine was brought in, he repaired the machine and he gave the bill to Henry Ford and 
the bill was for $10,000. And this is when $10,000 was real money. And Henry Ford said, $10,000? Uh, can you give me the breakdown on, on, you know, the parts and labor on this? And the guy said, part, $100. Knowing which part, $9,900. Henry Ford wrote the check. <laughs> he got the point. You know, knowing things can be valuable, and that's what's being addressed here. But there are certain subtle realities that have to be considered when it comes to knowledge and how it's acquired, particularly when it comes to the matter of how to live our lives. And what we think, uh, you know, is where we should look is not always the case. In fact, where we really learn to live can be places where we don't want to go. And this is what Solomon tells us. Look at uh, verse 3, for example. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. I think only people who have known sorrow can relate to what Solomon is saying. Does that mean I wake up every day looking for sorrow? Of course not, but there is something to be derived or uh, drawn from sorrow that's sweet. Look again here at verse 8. He makes a similar point. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. There's something to patience when it comes to this quest for wisdom. There are things that can only be known by the patient in spirit. Those who are proud in spirit might even be proud of their knowledge, but in their pride make themselves foolish, stupid, ignorant. Uh, consider uh, verse 13. He says there, consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? Often we learn uh, important lessons through failure, discovering that there are realities that we really can't alter. I think our civilization at the moment is going through a very hard lesson. Uh, that lesson has to do with the creation that we find ourselves in, and we're discovering the hard way that it does not do whatever we please. There are realities that are just simply the case. And those realities, you could say, are kind of the ontological hardscape of the, of the, of the cosmos. Now, those of you who have, some, have a background in landscaping know the difference between uh, landscape and hardscape. The hardscape is the physical terrain, the things that can't be altered, the things that uh, require a great deal of, uh, of physical force to, 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 in some sense, shape. Um, those are the things that you kind of work with as you do your landscaping. Or they can be the things that you create, like retaining walls and so forth. And those are the places where you don't plant. <laughs> those are the places that you, you see order the things that you do plant. And we live right now in a civilization where we think that we can just kind of alter the hardscape of the cosmos and make it do whatever we please. And what's occurring is uh, sort of an exercise in self-destruction. There are people today who are physically being damaged in ways that their bodies will never recover from because of the delusions of people who believe that we can make things behave any way we please. It's just simply the case. Who can make straight what God has made crooked. There are certain things that God has done that are just simply the case, and we have to work with those things. 
Now, when it comes to this matter of seeking wisdom, Scripture tells us that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And one of the reasons why we're not terribly wise is because we go to the wrong person for wisdom. We can go to ourselves, we can go to the authorities in our society, but ultimately, getting back to the why game, things are the way they are because God says so. We press the matter and keep asking the question, eventually we get to the same answer that you or I provide to our children, because I said so. Now that can seem arbitrary, that can seem tyrannical, but if the one who's speaking loves and has the interests of the one who's asking in mind, this is not the case. This is not an exercise in arbitrary power. What we're talking about is the wisdom of the parent, and in this case, the wisdom of God in the way things are ordered, and working with that order is wise. Now, today, we, we uh, are like people who've received a diagnosis that we don't like. We go to the Bible and we, we get the diagnosis. And we say, I don't like that diagnosis. I like a second opinion. <laughs> and so we go elsewhere for that second opinion. Um, and in the modern world, we're not really interested in the ultimate questions. We're interested in the how questions. We're not so much interested in why did God make the world and what is the meaning of life so much as how can I get what I want out of life and how can I get ahead in the world? How questions have replaced the ultimate questions, the why questions. We need to get back to uh, uh, asking good questions, which brings me to my original point. There really are dumb questions. And our society has excelled in stupid questions. And that's why we're getting such stupid answers. And one of the reasons why, you know, there's so much stupidity is one of the authorities that we turn to when it comes to you know, the second opinion is ourselves. You know, on the one hand, we confess our ignorance by asking the question. On the other hand, we demonstrate our ignorance by the fact that we try to supply the answer. Because I said so is the postmodern approach to asking the questions. So that's where we find ourselves. Now, Solomon, of course, is a man who's, who's uh, been referred to as the wisest man who's ever lived. And uh, one of the things we can definitely say about Solomon with regard to his wisdom is he really has seen it all. He's tried it all. If you look at his life, it doesn't end well, by the way. But uh, we see something uh, here to demonstrate maybe perhaps the reason why things made, it, made a bad turn for him. It seems like at certain points when you read Ecclesiastes that he's just thrown up his hands and said, I give up. Because there are some things that he wonders about that he doesn't really have any way to sort of work out or, or, or understand in a way that satisfies him. Let me give you a couple examples here. Let's take a look at verses 23 and 24 here in chapter 7. He says, all this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise. But it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? Throws up his hands. I'm asking, inquiring, thinking, and I can't figure this out. Now look at chapter 8. Remember I mentioned I'll take you into chapter 8. Verses 16 and 17, he says there, When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night 
do one eyes see sleep? Then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. So even though he's applied himself, he's asked the questions and he's asked good questions, he finds that he uh, comes away still wondering what is going on. Now there are two things that he does discover and they perplex him and these I think are causes for his despair. Uh, the first has to do with human nature. And we see him refer to this in uh, chapter 7 verse 29. He says, see this alone I found that God made man upright but they, plural, mankind, have sought out many schemes. So he seeks to know the scheme of things, the lay of the land, how the world has been made, the hardscape, the ontological hardscape, and in the end he finds out that man is a schemer himself who makes up his own way of doing things and uh, departs from God's truth. We see him refer in a sort of offhanded way in verse uh, 20 in the same chapter that he says this, surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. We have evidence of original sin in the Old Testament. It wasn't like a great breakthrough uh, when the apostles told us that we're sinners by nature. No, uh, that was well known. You remember G.K. Chesterton when he talked about the doctrines of the Christian faith? He said, there's only one doctrine that we can prove empirically, the fall of man. <laughs> original sin, we, we have plenty of evidence for that. And yet, that's the, one of the doctrines that people have a hard time accepting. People insist that uh, we aren't fallen by nature. The other thing, beside human nature, is the nature of injustice. He asks the question rhetorically, where is the justice? Look here in chapter 8 again. Let's look at verse 10. And he says something here in verses 10 and, and 14 that I think you may have noticed as well. He said, then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Now, by the way, just to remind you, this is my third message in the series on Ecclesiastes. The word that we translate into the English word vanity is habel, which actually means vapor, and it's actually the name that a, a name should come to mind when you hear Habel, Habel, Abel, Cain and Abel. Cain was a vapor that appeared on the surface of the earth for a time and then was no more. The things that we long for, the things that we think are important, the things that we live for, the evils that we do have no real substance. In other words, they're vaporous. Verse 14 here, he says something along the same line. He says, there is a vanity that takes place on earth that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. Have you noticed this? Sometimes bad people get rewarded and other times good people are punished. This isn't like a great new insight that people, you know, have that only occurred you know, in our time. This is something that people who believed in God wrestled with and struggled with 
you know, for a long time. Think of Job. Think of David in the Psalms. This is not new news. And then he says, you know, it, you can't even look back to the old days for encouragement. Go back to chapter 7. You know, sometimes we say, well, it used to be better. <laughs> it used to be better than this. No, just different. There were wicked things in the past, but they were different wicked things. Maybe they were better at things that we're not so good at today, but they were awful with other things. And so he says in verse 10 of chapter 7, Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. So there's no golden age in the past that we can point to and return to. And then he seems to devolve to a kind of acquiescence in verse 15 of chapter 8, and he says, And I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun than, get this, but to eat and to drink. And of course, the ESV says, be joyful, but you could say, be merry, right? That's the best that you have. Just settle for that. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. Well, that's a depressing message, Pastor Chris. I thought we were here to be inspired. Well, I think that we have to, first of all, deal with our illusions. Have you ever uh, thought very long and hard about the word disillusionment? Disillusionment is not a bad thing. If you have illusions, they need to be what? Dissed. <laughs> Dissing those illusions. That's a good thing. Because what you want to get is to something real. That's where you want to be. You want to be where you know this is so. Now, there are some things here that even in these dark moments, Solomon says are the case. If you look at verse, uh, verses 12 through 13 there in chapter 8, he says... Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well for those who fear God because they fear before him. And he goes on in verse 13. But it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. Now, how do we understand this vacillation between these two outlooks that we seem to see in Solomon. He does, uh, I think, have a measure of realism that we are, I think, uh, well advised to adopt for ourselves. Things just don't work out in the world the way we'd like, or even in a way that uh, is good and right. Nevertheless, there is a God who orders all things, and the God who orders all things will judge. Now, in verse, uh, verses 1 through 3 of chapter 9, he takes us in this direction. He says, But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hands of God, whether it is love or hate, man does not know, both are before him, meaning love or hate with regard to God's uh, outlook. It is the same for all. Since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean 
and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner, and he who swears as the one who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. And that is what we all have in common. That last clause. And after all, this is what is true for the good, the wicked, they all die. Now, that's awfully depressing as well to think about. But that's not where it all ends. If you look here at verse 4, but he who is joined with the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. Let's consider this for a second. He who's connected with the living has hope. He who's connected with the living has hope. Who was dead but is now alive? Not a dog, but the lion, the, the tribe of Judah. He's not a dead lion. He's a living lion. And he's now seated at the right hand. And because we are united to him as Christians, we have hope. This puts everything into perspective. We know that things will be set right someday because the one who was raised from the dead... According to the Apostle Paul, Acts chapter 17, he's addressing the Areopagus. The one who is raised from the dead will judge the world. Things will be set right. In the meantime, things are not so good and not always right. People who do what is right sometimes are not treated right. Those who do evil are not punished for their evil deeds. But this will not go on forever. There is one who is alive, and Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Christ, in other words, what has occurred for him will be true for the rest of us. And those who are raised to eternal life will enjoy the goods that are due to him. They will be just in him because he was just and justified we have a future and that's why we have hope you know sometimes people will wax poetic when it comes to this matter of uh, you know what becomes of the departed they'll say things like well you know he lives on in our hearts he lives on in our hearts he lives on in you know our memory uh, I'm reminded of Woody Allen. Now, Woody Allen is certainly not a person that I commend to you in any way, but occasionally he says something amusing. And he said at one point when he was reflecting on the nature of death in a film, I can't remember which film it was, probably just as well since you won't have to go and look at and watch it. He said, I don't want to live on in the hearts of my countrymen. I want to live on in my apartment. When it comes to this matter of living on, we as Christians look forward to real life. 
we look forward to what Christ even now enjoys. What he enjoys, we will enjoy because we are, what? Connected to him. Because we're connected to him, we have hope. Verse 4, but he who is joined with all the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. And perhaps we are dogs. But the one to whom we're connected, as I noted, is the lion of the tribe of Judah, and he lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, sobering things to think about, reflect upon, to order our conduct in life. Help us, Lord, to know that the things that we do in our lives do follow us. At the same time, Lord, help us to also recall that the sins that we've committed have been paid for by our Savior. And because he lives, we have hope. Help us, Lord, to live with that hope and in that hope. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you want to find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com. Oh, yeah.